So this is uh, the third and final week of our latest series of talks on some of the big questions that people have about Christianity and the Bible. And we always start these talks by offering some kind of disclaimer, especially if you are a guest or a visitor here today, that these are not your typical week-to-week kind of sermon. And we also remind everyone that the reason that they are called big questions is because they are also difficult questions. So uh, just because the questions may be good, it doesn't necessarily mean we've got good answers to them as well. We're just kind of giving it a go. And for a lot of them, there isn't actually any right answer. So if you find that a different answer makes better sense to you than the ones that I'm suggesting, then that's totally fine. So today we're going to be talking about what Leon Morris called the central doctrine of Christianity which is something called atonement. That sounds a bit technical, but all it means is being made at one with God, being made right with God, being brought into a state of at-one-ment, literally. And we're going to be asking ourselves the how question. Yes, Jesus saves, but how exactly? How did he bring us into this at-one relationship, this atoned relationship with God? We who were far away from him and could not save ourselves. Now, if you Google the phrase, Jesus saves, then there's a strong chance you'll come up with the words of an old hymn. We have heard the joyful sound, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Spread the tidings all around, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Bear the news to every land, climb the steeps and cross the waves. Onward, tis our Lord's command, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Okay, but how exactly? The hymn doesn't tell us. I wonder how you would answer that question if a friend was to ask you. Now, many Christians would say, that's easy. Jesus saves us through the cross. Yes, but how exactly? He saves us through his death on the cross. Yes, but how exactly? If something happened at the cross, which was the central moment and the turning point in human history, then what was it? How is the death of Jesus... 2,000 years ago, significant for me personally today? And then, how do we explain it in ways that make sense to people, using language and concepts that they don't have to look up in a religious dictionary to know what on earth we're talking about? Now, you would think, would you not, that given its significance for Christianity, you would think that how Jesus saves us would have been one of the very first statements of belief that they pinned down in the early church. But the interesting thing is that all of the creeds that were produced by the great and the good in the early church and the first five centuries of Christianity, and to this day that are still used to define what Christians believe, all of the early creeds are completely silent on that question. The most famous one is a case in point, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, 
who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, that's the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick, the living, and the dead. The creed talks about the events of Jesus' life, his crucifixion, his resurrection, but it doesn't tell us how Jesus saves us. And the same thing is true of all of the other early creeds as well, which seems kind of odd, does it not, for the central doctrine of the church. So I hear you asking, why might that have been? Well, there are several possible reasons. Uh, One is that it was simply obvious. Everyone knew the answer, so nobody bothered to write it down. Possible, but unlikely. Another is that we know that most of the material in the creeds was written as some kind of response to some kind of controversy, some heresy that was going around at the time, like Marcion, who we talked about last week. But because that never happened with the question of how Jesus saves us, they never covered it. Another possibility is that the early church took the same view as the writers of the New Testament, who, as Howard Marshall says, seem to have been far more concerned with the nature of salvation. In other words, what it means to be saved than with the precise way in which it was achieved, which is true, which is why we should be most interested in that as well. So there's a bit of truth in all of them. But the main reason is none of them. The main reason that the creeds are silent on this how question is because the New Testament answers it in a multiplicity of different ways. And so too, therefore, did the early church. They never felt that any one answer needed to be given the status of the answer or the right answer or the only answer. They realized that the New Testament presents us with what Joel Green has called a whole kaleidoscope of images, each of which explains one aspect of the many things that Jesus did for us at the cross. And the way that the New Testament does that is by giving us metaphors, painting pictures, in other words, of how what Jesus has done is a bit like this and a bit like that. And it does it so that the people of the day would get it and be able to grasp it because they used concepts and illustrations that people were familiar with from their everyday lives. So if the Bible offers us these multiple pictures of multiple aspects of what Jesus has done for us, then it's because God wants us to understand it in multiple ways and not just in one way. And this is also how the Bible makes sure that the answer to our question remains timeless. Because some of those images and explanations will make more sense to people living in one culture and one period of history. And other images and explanations will work better for people in other cultures at other times in history. Some of them will have worked best in the first century. Others in the 11th century others in the 16th century, and still others will work best 
in the 21st century. Now, obviously, as Christians, we will want to be familiar with all of them, as many as possible, so that we get the fullest possible picture of Jesus' work. But we are not compelled to use any particular one as our starting point for sharing with someone the good news of what Jesus has done. We can start with whichever one makes the most sense to that person that will most easily enable them to get it in our day and our culture. And that's so that we are not offering solutions to problems that people don't recognise or answers to questions that no one is asking. So think of it as a bit like entering into a, a big building through any one of the doors into that building, whichever one that you please. Let me quickly run through just some of the ways in which the New Testament pictures it, and hopefully you will see what I mean. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that, free from sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. In other words, Jesus set us free from sin's power over us so we can live differently, live right, and be healed of the damage that sin has done to us. Revelation 1.5 also says, Jesus freed us from our sins by his blood. 1 John 1.7, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. So here we see what Jesus did described as a cleansing from the dirt and the stains and the pollution that sin does to our lives. John 1.29, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this taking away is probably an allusion to the Jewish Day of Atonement when the priest would put his hands on the head of a goat and symbolically transfer the sins of the community onto that goat. And the goat would then be driven away, sent away into the wilderness, outside the camp, taking their sins with it. 1 John 3, 5 also says, Jesus came to take away our sins. Ephesians 1, 5 to 7 God the Father destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Several things going on here in this verse. Through Jesus, we've been adopted by God as his sons and daughters. We also receive redemption. We also receive forgiveness. Now, I just quickly need to explain what this word redemption means. It's referring to a person held in slavery. And slavery was a, a very big part of first century society. And the major reason that people ended up in slavery was because they couldn't pay their debts. So with nothing else to sell, they sold themselves. And whenever the New Testament talks about Jesus ransoming us or redeeming us or paying the price for us, it's talking about rescuing us from slavery. In our case, to the power of sin and death and Satan as our slave master. By paying the price, the ransom to release us 
from the slave trader and give us our freedom. It's a bit like when someone is being held captive by kidnappers and demands that a price be paid for their release. Or like redeeming something that's been pawned at a pawnbroker's, if you're familiar with that. That's P-A-W-N, not P-O-R-N. But it's about paying the price to release something of value back to its rightful owner. And because slavery was so prevalent and affected so many people, that imagery spoke really powerfully in the first century world. So that is what it means in Matthew 20 when Jesus said, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Just a, a couple more, Ephesians 5.2. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So here's an image that we're probably quite familiar with, that of Jesus as a sacrifice. So the question is, what kind of sacrifice? Because there were lots of different kinds of sacrifice in the Old Testament. And they weren't just for sin, which many people assume. They were also made for lots of other reasons, including thanksgiving and worship and for sealing a covenant. In fact, a sacrifice was actually a gift, which this verse is reflecting. Hebrews 10.12 talks about Jesus as our high priest, offering for all time one sacrifice for sin. So that imagery definitely is there. But you know, Jesus himself focused on a different reason for his sacrifice. In the Last Supper, in Luke 22, when he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, a covenant is an ancient form of contract or binding agreement, usually entered into between two tribes or rulers, one greater and one lesser. And covenants were uh, prized so highly that entering into a covenant was reckoned to be the equivalent of joining two families together into one. And making a sacrifice, which then became the centerpiece of a meal that they shared together, that was what sealed that covenant and brought it into effect. So it's that kind of covenant-making sacrifice with us, between us and God, that Jesus was talking about in the Last Supper, where we, of course, get communion from and of course, where Jesus and his disciples also shared a meal together. And then just to add one more dimension, here's another picture from another New Testament writer picturing Jesus as yet another kind of sacrifice which also has nothing to do with sin. This is 1 Corinthians 5.7 where the Apostle Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You may recall that the Jewish Passover was when Jesus chose to die on the cross. And the Last Supper, just before he went to the cross, was a Passover week meal. And the Passover festival was to remember and celebrate how God liberated Israel from slavery in Egypt. So by choosing to die at Passover, Jesus is pointing us towards the Exodus and the role of the cross in setting us free 
from the hostile powers that enslave our lives, just as he done for Israel in Egypt, releasing us too into a new kind of life in a promised land that he has for us. The Passover lamb wasn't sacrificed for sin or anything to do with sin. It was a covenant sacrifice, but with a twist, because the blood of the lamb was symbolically daubed on the doorposts and the lintels of the houses to mark out who were the people of God, the people who were under the blood, who were under God's divine protection when that angel of death passed over their houses that night. And that, of course, is where we get the idea and the language that Christians sometimes use, uh, not always very wisely, but this idea that we are covered by the blood of the Lamb. And, of course, it's a picture of how we, too, are saved from death to eternal life. And the Hebrew word for Passover, which is Pesar, had two other meanings before it ever came to be used in the sense of passing over. And those are to have compassion and to protect. Isn't that nice? I thought that was nice. So different New Testament writers use these different pictures drawn from different types of sacrifice, in each of which they are picturing Jesus as one of those sacrifice types in these different ways. And they're showing us that all of this imagery and all of these verses that we've just been looking at is illustrating and helping us to grasp in different ways, different aspects of what Jesus has done. No one aspect in isolation needs to take precedence over any other. This is not a competition. They are all important and we are free to use the ones that make the most sense to us and to the people that we're wanting to share the good news of Jesus with in our day and culture and situations. So as Christians, folks, we are completely within the boundaries of orthodoxy. We are not a weirdo or a heretic. Well, we might still potentially be a weirdo, but we won't be a heretic. Whichever of these understandings of atonement that we personally prefer. Okay, so you would think that that would be that. Freeing us, healing us, cleansing us, paying the price for us, adopting us, forgiving us, sacrificing himself for us, and covenanting with us. However, for some Christians, especially those who come from a reformed evangelical background and especially Calvinists, they're not happy with this kaleidoscope of imagery. Or at least they can see that all of them are biblical and valid, but they think that there is another one that deserves not only to be added to the list, but to take priority over all the rest. So much so, they say, that you have to buy into it. And this is one that many of us will have heard when we first became a Christian, as I did. And it uses law court imagery, in which God is the divine judge, And we humans are like uh, convicted criminals sitting on death row just awaiting punishment and death. And it runs along these lines. As sinful people, we are all under God's wrath. 
His anger burns from heaven against us because of our sinfulness. Although he loves us too, he can't just forgive us because all crime must be punished. And that's where Jesus comes in. He came to take the punishment that we deserve in place of us. So God the Father carried out his sentence. He poured out all of his anger and wrath against us onto his innocent son instead so that he would be able to forgive. Let me ask for a quick show of hands. Who has heard a version of the gospel roughly along those lines? Give or take. Yeah, quite a few. Thank you. Now, uh, in the trade, amongst theologians, this way of explaining it is called penal substitution. Penal meaning punishment and substitution in the sense of taking someone else's place, like a, a substitute in a football match. Because this version is so common in evangelicalism, I would say it's entirely possible that this morning is the first time some of us have ever heard that it's not the only way to explain it. Uh, What you might not know is that not only is it not the only way, it's only been so since the Reformation in the late Middle Ages. That's when it started to become popular. That may be because both Luther and Calvin trained as lawyers. But either way, because of the significance of the Reformation in shaping the thinking of modern Christianity, it's become the most common way for evangelicals, at least, to explain how Jesus saves us, especially in America. But you know, one good reason to be wary of choosing this particular picture of the atonement to explain what Jesus has done to your friends, even though we do find allusions to it in the Bible, is because it is so open to misunderstanding and to caricature. For example, your average person would say, it sounds like a pretty sick father who demands the torture and suffering of his son to deal with his own anger management issues. The Calvinist John Piper talks about Jesus' role in this as, and and I quote, a beautiful act of submission and obedience to the will of the Father. But you know, that is not something that I personally would like to have to explain to someone as good news. Okay, now, if you became a Christian, hearing that version of the gospel, and if that continues to make complete sense to you, and if you're having great success in sharing that understanding with your unchurched friends, for whom it too makes complete sense, then that is all fine. Like I said last week, I don't need to trouble you anymore. You can uh, check Facebook for the next five minutes or something. Because the problem is that it's not fine for everybody. The well-known Baptist minister, Steve Chalk, who you may have seen on TV, he got himself into some big trouble a few years back when he said that this version of the gospel sounds more like cosmic child abuse. Now, that is a poor choice of words, for sure. But you may be able to see what he's getting at, because many other people struggle with it as well. And this morning, what I want to say to you is, you are allowed to struggle with it if you do. Because, as we've already seen, there are lots of other ways to explain it, and more besides those that I mentioned. 
And this explanation is also far less biblical, it's far less central to the New Testament than most people assume. And that's because when we remove from the list of verses that people assume are talking about penal substitution, all of the verses that refer to ransom, redemption, redeeming, paying the price, the Passover lamb, and sacrifice, none of which, as we've seen, have anything to do with punishment or God's wrath or the law courts or placating God's anger, then, to be very honest, there aren't actually that many left. Even sacrifice isn't about punishment. The point of sacrifice in the Old Testament was never to make the animal suffer. The animal wasn't being punished. So where does penal substitution come from biblically? Well, in the Old Testament, it mainly relies on one passage in Isaiah 53, which you can maybe read later. And in the New Testament, it relies mainly on four verses that feature one particular Greek word, hilasterion. Sorry about that, can't avoid one Greek word this morning. And this uh, word appears in a verse in Romans, one in Hebrews, and two in 1 John. And just to complicate things, that Greek word has two entirely different meanings. So when uh, the, the translator um, will be translating that word based upon whatever he thinks the biblical writer intended, or perhaps whether or not he favours penal substitution himself, and they will translate that Greek word using one of two English words. Long words coming up, be careful. One is propitiation, and the other is expiation. And they are both completely different in meaning. So propitiation means doing something to turn away someone's anger, to placate them and to regain their favour as a result. So that's the placating the angry God, turning away his wrath and enabling him to forgive by taking out the punishment on Jesus. But expiation, on the other hand, means to cancel or to cleanse. So cancelling our debt of sin or cleansing us from it. So you pays your money and takes your choice in terms of how you want to translate this Greek word, propitiation or expiation. And we see this dilemma, these two options, in the different Bible translations. I don't know which one you have, but let me just show you how they differently translate it depending on which direction they come at it from. So, as an example, let's take 1 John 4.10. Now, virtually all of the translations start this verse with the same introduction. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son. For what reason? Number one, to be the propitiation for our sins. That's the ESV, which is a Reformed translation. To satisfy God's anger against our sins. Uh, pretty clear where the Living Bible is also coming from. As a sacrifice to clear away our sins and the damage they've done to our relationship with God. I like this one. As you can see, the message is going with expiation, a cleansing and a taking away, with a sense of healing and restoration thrown in as well. 
which the RSV makes explicit. It uses the word expiation. And then there's the NIV, which tries to steer a middle path between the two, otherwise known as it leaves it ambiguous when it says an atoning sacrifice. And then last but not least, you've got the good news version, which neatly sums up what the good news of Jesus really is. Because at the end of the day, this is what matters. The reason Jesus came, God sent his son to be a reconciliation for our sins. In other words, to bring us back to God, to restore and repair the broken relationship, to reconcile us so that we can know God personally through Jesus. So my advice is forget the Greek and just go with this last one because that is really what it's all about. So if you like the penal substitution version, if that makes sense to you and you can explain it to your friends in ways that make sense to them and that draw them to God, then please do so. But if you can't, and it doesn't make good sense to you, then you don't have to. You have a veritable smorgasbord of options as to how to explain it. Now, one of the reasons that you may have found it's uh, quite difficult to sell this version of the atonement to your friends is because in Western society, crime is no longer punished in the ways that it used to be. You may have noticed that. So over 200 years ago, before penal reform and the advent of the prison system, there were over 200 offences in this country punishable by death, including many that we would now consider to be trivial, like stealing a loaf of bread. And torture and bodily mutilation, cutting off limbs and gouging eyes and stuff like that, were standard ways in which we punish crimes. So 200 years ago, the explanation that Jesus saved us from that by taking the punishment that we deserved on himself instead would have made perfect sense. But now, of course, we don't have any crimes that are punished that way. The worst that can happen to someone is that they lose their freedom. So, to explain to someone how it is in God's heavenly justice system that even the most trivial of sins deserves to be punished by physical violence and death. But don't worry because God has carried out his sentence on his innocent son instead so that we can escape that type of punishment when we die so long as we say yes to Jesus now. All of that is a pretty difficult sell for many of us. Not least because this way of thinking just happens to correspond to how crimes were punished in the ancient world. But now they're only punished that way in brutal third world dictatorships and by Islamic extremists. But of course, uh, just because something is a hard sell or it offends modern Western thinking does not in itself make it wrong. If that really is the good news of the gospel, if as John Piper has said, the whole message of the Bible leads to that conclusion, then obviously we are not at liberty to rewrite it just to make it more palatable. But as we've seen this morning, that isn't the whole message of the Bible, not by a long shot.
So quite a lot to take in this morning. Maybe you might like to think about watching the video again later in the week. But at the end of the day, I think C.S. Lewis was surely right when he talked about the answer to that how question, how Jesus saves us. And he said this, a person can accept what Christ has done without knowing how it works. The thing itself is infinitely more important than any explanation that theologians have produced, even me. At the end of the day, there is no question that God is both a God of justice and a God of love. He is both and. And this is a bit of an oversimplification, but some Christians start with his justice and some start with his love. Some see his love through the lens of his justice and some see his justice through the lens of his love. But you and I are completely at liberty to explain what Jesus has done for us in whatever ways we want. Whatever ways make most sense to us. What worked for us and drew us to follow Jesus in the first place. And we can draw from this kaleidoscope of images, kaleidoscope of explanations that scripture offers us for how Jesus saved us. How Jesus reconciled us to God when we were estranged, how he made it possible for us to know him personally in our lives, to become children of a loving Heavenly Father. And Rui, if I could have a last slide up. It's a little bit of an advert for one of my very favorite authors. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the red one is uh, only available as an e-book, you can find that on Amazon. That's ridiculously cheap. Uh, you have it on Kindle or on your computer. Uh, the other one is more recent. It's a bit more complicated. Um, I would suggest that comes with a health warning. Don't buy that book unless you had a little skim through it. We've got a few display copies uh, in the entrance on the, on the book stand. So uh, they're both about atonement. So if you're interested in the subject, then you might like to uh, have a look at one.